0: A man cannot say that he is walking in the light when he is not regarding his brother. And though we didn't actually sit on it for too long, we also considered just briefly kind of the first how of loving the brethren in 1 John 2, verse 10. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. The man who is loving his brother is a man who is intentionally, not putting an occasion of stumbling in his brother's way. We're called to have a high regard, not just for our brother in some sort of uh, emotional sense or personality sense or whatever it might be, but in the spiritual sense, have a high regard for him, have a high regard for his conscience. And as I said, I didn't sit on it for very long because at the time, we in the church were walking through a... um, Tuesday series on exactly that, right? On uh, the concepts of liberty, on the concepts of the weaker brethren principle, on the concepts of judgment. And we had been talking and we did talk quite thoroughly about these ideas. And within that, within the scope of that, this idea of the weaker brethren principle, not putting an occasion of stumbling before the brethren. And and there aren't a whole lot of those messages online. I've not taken to putting a lot of Tuesday night online. Uh, But that Because that principle was being uh, hit in another forum so well at that time, I, I, I kind of brushed over it at the time. And then I, I have had a few people come up to me since and say, well, Pastor, we've talked about loving the brethren, and I know it's a very important concept. Uh, can you give a little more on how? And yes, I will give a little more on how. But because of the nature of how 1 John is written, there's, in a sense, a lot of repetition. We laid a very strong and slow foundation in 1 John. You're going to find that over the next several weeks, we will be speeding up. So we only have a, a little bit longer left in the book of 1 John as we are taking larger chunks. We're hearing John reiterate these concepts surrounding uh, these two essential principles, which is love the Lord thy God, keep his commands, right? And then love the brethren. So when we get to the end of all of that and we've seen all of God's, teach, uh, God's teaching on the issue, then we're going to do a, a summary message where we'll get a, deep, a bit deeper into that How? And I would ask you to be patient as we, we try to get through that so that we're not putting the cart before the horse and we're not, um, uh, hopefully, not getting to a point where things feel too repetitious or too tedious throughout. So we did see, at least in part, this how... Of loving the brethren, in First John 2:10, that we put no occasion of stumbling before him. And today, in First John three verses 11 through 18, we'll find more instruction concerning this idea of loving the brethren. a little bit more "how," a little bit more of the "what," leading us into this conviction of how it is that we can walk abiding in Christ, walk in a manner that pleases Him so that we can come to this place of fullness of joy. So we read in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. I again make note, as we dig in this evening, that when we consider the call to love one another, John is not simply talking about all men here in the broader sense, that love thy neighbor as thyself, or in the broad sense of love... Your enemies; These are concepts which we find in the Word of God, which are important in the Word of God. But as John is calling us unto this place of abiding, what it looks like to walk in the light, what it looks like to be abiding in him, and as he's contrasting this with the false teachers that were among them, and John is seeking to paint the distinction between what they are, are supposed to be doing and what false teachers are doing or, teaching, or attempting to teach them to do, this distinction is about believers, loving the brethren, this call is realized not in love thy neighbor as thyself, but much, a, a much higher principle, that one that Jesus introduced in the New Testament, to have a unique regard for God's people, for the brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul would write, and this idea is, is seen in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, where he said, as we therefore have, oppor- we have excuse me, therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. This is what we see. This is the idea here. Paul uh, gives us this flavor. John is giving us this flavor in 1 John. The idea that we we love all men. We even love our enemies as Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 7. And yet, as we consider this command to do good unto all men, to love our neighbor as ourselves, we see a, a further specification that as it relates to We who are in the body of Christ, as it relates to we who are brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a call to have a higher regard, especially unto them that are the household of faith. We, as we have opportunity, do good unto them. There is a call to have a particular regard, one for another, to invest in one another, and thus to do right by one another spiritually, emotionally, and physically as the body of Christ. John exhorts us again unto this mind. He does so this time through a negative example. So, Pastor, how do we do these things? Well, we saw in 1 John 2.10, we do this by placing none occasion of stumbling before our brother. Again, we'll get to that uh, as we summarize things toward the end of 1 John. Here we see a negative example, and and I've said this before, uh, but this is one of the better ways oftentimes for us to um, be able to express a thought you don 't just express a thought positively by what it is, but a lot of times it really helps to express what something is by telling you what it is not i 've said many times before for for many. They said that the most helpful page on our entire website is the What We Are Not page. We've got all of that doctrine on our website about what we are and what we believe and what we think and, uh, and where, why we believe it. But then I've had people say, well, I, I read through all of that and that was all good, but when I got to your What We Are Not page, that was really helpful because that rules out all of the potential problems, right? Or, or maybe rules us out as because we are a problem. But one way or another, that's a helpful page. And here, John is saying... Love the brethren, and let me tell you what that is not. Not as Cain. Not as Cain loved his brother. Because he didn't love his brother. A man who bore in himself what we in 1 John would consider to be the spirit of Antichrist, right? The spirit of that which is contrary to the word of God. The spirit of that which is contrary to the character of God. One who, in the words of 1 John 3.10 that we considered last week, is a child of the devil. One who is walking in darkness. That was Cain. He did not love his brother. He slew his brother. And why, John asks, did Cain kill Abel? Not for anything Abel had done per se, Cain killed Abel because Cain's works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. Now, we talked about this in detail not too long ago in Genesis. We're finding a merging of our Tuesday teaching and our Sunday morning teaching and our Sunday evening teaching, which is a wonderful thing. And if you've been keeping up, then you are very familiar with what we have said recently about the nature of the interaction between Cain and Abel. But Cain killed his brother because Abel's works were righteous and his works were Cain killed his brother because when he compared his works to Abel's works, his works were found deficient. But he was not repentant over his own works. He was not, he did not, have a problem with his own works, except for the fact that when he compared his works to Abel's works, he felt guilty because he knew that Abel's works were righteous and his were not. And so he said, the problem here is not what I'm doing. The problem is that this guy next to me is doing something better. So if I get rid of him, then I'm good. And this is not uncommon as it relates to the human nature. Cain's deceitful heart convinced him that the problem was that Abel existed, not that he was doing wrong. And if only he could remove Abel, he could remove the standard by which Abel operated and then his guilt and his shame would go away because Abel wouldn't be there making him feel guilty through his righteousness. And as we consider at that time, this is a warning that the New Testament gives several times. That the human heart's natural solution to removing my guilt and my sin the guilt of my sin my guilt and my shame is not to repent the human heart's natural inclination when one feels that shame of sin is not to repent it's to get rid of the messenger it's to get rid of the thing that's making me feel guilty Because I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing. I just want to stop feeling what I'm feeling when I do what I do. Which means I have to get rid of the people or the message or the thing in my life that is pointing out to me that what I'm doing is wrong. And I feel like if I can get rid of that thing, then I can make the guilt and the shame go away of what I am doing. And this is common which is why at the, end of this, uh, at the end of this little snippet that we're looking at here, John connects this idea of Cain killing his brother Abel to, in verse 13, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Well, because that's the idea. If you are doing righteousness, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Not necessarily because they hate you, But because if you're doing right and they're doing wrong, then they are feeling guilty. And they don't want to stop doing wrong. They just want to get rid of the person that's making them feel guilty. And that's you, not because you're judging them, not because you're telling them that they're wicked, not because you're smacking them over the head with the Bible, but because when they compare themselves to you, they feel naturally guilty, and they say, if we can just get rid of that person, if I can just get rid of that person, if I can just get rid of that messenger, in a societal sense, if we can just get rid of those Christians, then we can move forward in society and say, this is okay. But it's those Christians that are telling us that this is not okay through their life. Jesus would say a similar thing, and you guessed it, John 15, right? It would have been 13 through 17, somewhere in there. If the world hates you, Jesus said in John 15:18, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his name, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake. Because they know not him that sent me. If I had spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that none other man did, they had not had sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But this cometh to pass, the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus says that if you follow him, the world will treat you as it treated him. And why? Because you represent him. Why was Jesus put upon that cross? Jesus was not put upon the cross because he was a great offender. He was not put on that cross because of his sin. He was not put on that cross uh, because he uh, was, was causing tremendous uh, uh, societal Evils and, and um, a wickedness. He was put on that cross because the powers that be could not feel self righteous while he was ministering among them. He exposed the darkness of their hearts and they hated him for it. They did not hate him because he was a wicked man, they did not hate him because he was a criminal. They hated him because he was righteous, and that exposed their unrighteousness. Jesus says, don't be surprised if you are treated the same way. If you're following Jesus, don't be surprised when you get treated the same way Jesus got treated. And Jesus goes on to say, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So we would not necessarily expect that everyone will reject the message of the gospel on our lips or everyone will reject the testimony of the gospel through our actions. Those who would who, who accept the righteousness that is in Christ will accept those actions. That when I see someone, if, if I am walking in the light and I see someone else and they're doing something and there's conviction in my own heart because they're doing right and I'm doing wrong, I will... Re- I, 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 I'll repent, right? I'll repent, I'll get right. I'll say, thank God that there's someone to show me an example of what is right. But it's also entirely possible because it's forged in the human heart that when you are doing what is right, when you are saying what is right, and people, whether they know you or not, regardless of your personality, regardless of how nice you are, whatever it might be, they will see in that great offense Because your obedience, your love, your good testimony makes them feel guilty. But they will not stop doing what they're doing. Instead, they will silence you or attempt to do so. Now, this is not intended to forge in us an us versus them mentality. Where we guard ourselves against this hatred that we might feel against us from others by becoming cynical, defensive, or hating them back. This is actually exactly why Jesus taught what he taught. Because when I feel that kind of resistance toward me, when I am simply attempting to do what is right and somebody is upset at me or trying to silence me because I'm trying to do what's right, what Jesus is teaching here is meant to give us the perspective by which we understand that when they are unkind to me, when they persecute me, when they are being nasty to me, it's not actually me. It's Jesus in me. And so I don't have to take offense. Yes, I become the messenger, right? And and, and as humans have characteristically done throughout history, the messenger is the one that gets killed. But though, though I am the messenger, it is not me that they are hating. It is Christ that they are hating. And so I don't have to build in me an us versus them mentality. I don't have to become cynical. I don't have to become defensive. As a matter of fact, just to the opposite, the message of this sermon, the title of this sermon, Love Exemplified, when Jesus was rejected, what did he do? He's hanging on that cross. He looks down and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if who they're really hating is Jesus. And if Jesus went to the cross to save them, 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So if Jesus extended his love to them when they had rejected him, how can I do anything but the same? Extend my love to them as they are rejecting me. So Jesus gives us this insight so that we can be spiritually and emotionally, even perhaps physically, prepared to go out into a world and to do that thing, to love our enemies, if by chance they might, by some knowledge of the truth, come to faith. And of course, what this does also is advocate for the ultimate way to function in the church body. If it is entirely expected that when we step out into the world, we're going to be hated of all men for Christ's sake. If it is fully expected that when you step out of here, and again, that doesn't mean that everybody is going to dislike you. It means they are going to dislike Christ in you, right? There's going to become a natural separation between you and the people of this world as you're not walking in the same direction. They're not really going to want to be around you anymore because when they're around you, you don't do the things that they do and it makes them feel guilty about doing them when you won't do them with them because sin loves company. And as you go through this and you're starting to feel that distance and there's that frustration, you step out into this world and you kind of uh, whether, that's, whether that's in a, a broader sense through narratives or whether that's in an individual sense through family or friends, you might walk through that week and by the end of the week you feel a little bit beat up. It's entirely expected that when I interact with the unbelieving world, I will more or less... Be compelled to always be on guard because the world is often ruthless. People will lie. They will cheat. They will steal to get their way. Much of culture is not driven by virtue, but by power. And then if I am not uh, going in the same direction as that culture, as that world, it's going to be even worse for me. And all the more as it relates thus to my spiritual testimony. When wicked people doing wicked things interact with men who are not doing wickedness, they get upset. This testimony oftentimes will magnify in the hearts of the wicked their own guilt and so compel them to distance from you all the more. Desire perhaps even to silence you in an attempt to silence their own conscience. And this is what God's people can expect and in a sense ought to expect in the world around us. So then let me ask you this. Think through that with me. That's what you Can expect, again, I hope that I have not painted a picture here where you go out into the world and get cynical and defensive and grumpy and and, and whatnot. That's not the idea here. But this is what one can expect. How much more important is it then that when we come together as a body of believers, the exact opposite is true? How much more important is it that we express love to one another. That is the opposite of that. Not as Cain, who slew his brother because his own works were evil and his brother's were righteous. But in the very opposite of that, that when I come into this body of believers and I start saying, okay, I've got to do what is right and I've got I've to choose to do what is right. And I choose to do what is right and then I wince for the, for the backlash and I w- say, wait a minute. Everyone is rejoicing with me over that. Everyone is happy that I did that. Everyone is, is, is praising God that I made that choice. I have come into this body and much to the opposite of what Cain did to Abel. I have received further love and further encouragement. These people are provoking me unto love and good works. They are encouraging me to do the same. They are lifting up my feeble arms. They are strengthening my weak knees. They are giving me the strength to get back out there and to do it again and to stand up for truth and righteousness. That's what the body is supposed to be. That's what Christians are supposed to be, one for another. And this opposite idea that we see in Cain and Abel is intended to show us, do the opposite of that. The opposite of wanting to slay your brother for his righteousness. Exalt the Lord and uplift your brother in his righteousness. A community of people who are driven by a determined love one for another. Driven by the express intent that we are going to lift one another up in obedience and righteousness. Now, as I say these things, to some degree... Uh, it may not have the kind of impact that it could at other times in history. And the reason why I say that is because, as I've said many times before, we do happen to live in a society where it is possible that you go out into the world and you live righteousness and people aren't, don't have a huge problem with it. For some in here, you'll say, Pastor, exactly what you said, the Cain and Abel thing, that is me. That's what I experience. I go out there, I start doing what's right, and the people that I have to interact with really don't like me. You know, I'm that Bible thumper. I'm that holier-than-thou guy. I'm judging them all the time. That's how they see me. They try to silence me and whatnot. But then for others, maybe that's not the case because we do live in a society that more or less has been a safe haven for righteous living as a general rule. Our society has still always very much been secular as a, 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 in, in, in long-term trajectory. But by and large, this country specifically, the Western world more broadly, is built upon a Protestant outlook that is actually quite tolerant for many viewpoints. At least to the extent that, if I am being treated wrongly for my faith... I can, at the very least, just kind of separate myself, right? I'm not compelled to be among people that are seeking to silence me for my faith. And quite often, I even have various laws on the books that are protecting me from being uniquely targeted or silenced for my faith. If I don't want to be around toxic people and institutions, it's still relatively easy for me to go find places where they are not going to be affecting my day in and day out. To this end... I personally don't necessarily go into every transaction assuming that the person across from me is trying to take advantage of me or assuming that if I stand up for doing what is right, that that is going to cause a big stir or a problem among those people or assuming that they're going to dislike me uh, specifically because I have the path that I've chosen as as as, as it relates to stating or living my faith overtly. I mean, even in individual transactions uh, and relationships, I can uh, get along quite well with my neighbors even if, if I am not choosing to walk the path of unrighteousness that they're choosing to walk. But I cannot stress enough how rare of a thing this is in history. Not even just in history as we would look back, but even today, how rare of a thing it is in this world to have such, I'll use the word, toleration in your society. There are many, many places that we could go in this world where you would not find anything of the sort as it relates to any attempt to live according to biblical mandates. To this end, some of us may not necessarily perceive in the dramatic terms that John is using here the difference that John is painting between Christian interaction in the church and unbelieving action in the world. Now our society of course, is working toward that wicked end, and we might this first John might become a little more relevant in that sense in the years that are to come. So I'm not going to say that you and I are at a, a disadvantage in, in that sense, much to the contrary, it's a true blessing that we live in a society, we pray every week that the Lord would preserve a society where we can speak the word of God without fear, where we can meet together without fear, where we don't have to wonder whether or not um, uh, that we are going to face major repercussions in personal relationships, in working relationships, specifically because we are standing up for and choosing to do what the word of God says. But it does place us at a disadvantage in one particular area that because we might fail to see this distinction clearly, because we might fail to see the kind of hatred, and again, I use that word in the rejection sense, the kind of disesteem or the kind of rejection that, the, that, that a unbelieving society might normally levy upon those who are speaking truth and living truth, in doing so, we might fail to see just how important that brotherly love in the assembly needs to be. If I don't feel on a daily basis or on a weekly basis that kind of strain that comes from being rejected of those who are are living in wickedness in their society, then perhaps I don't feel with as great a clarity the tremendous love or I don't feel even the compulsion under the tremendous amount of love that we ought to have one to another when we come together. And so we might end up kind of brushing this exhortation under the rug a little bit. Yeah, we come together, we're cordial, we do what we do, we're nice to one another, we encourage each other to do what's right, all well, all good, that's fine. But, but that's not the idea that John is, is, is showing here. I mean, what, what example did he use? Not as Cain, not as the one who slew his brother, right? That's the idea that John is contrasting this with. Do the opposite of that. To this end, the Christian church has a bit of a unique challenge in the West. And that challenge, not necessarily enduring the pervasive hatred or persecution that society and culture might impose upon believers, and so the challenge of living in that dramatic distinction and having the boldness to do so, that battle will probably be fought another day. But rather, the challenge of, if you will not falling into the apathy of simply saying, we're just going to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as, 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 as people, right? Just as people, just as, as, as we treat anyone else in that sense. And so that is actually more of our temptation, that because we don't feel that distinction, we would simply fall short of having in our minds the, the kind of love that we ought to have one to another, the kind of regard that we ought to hold one for another. But that doesn't mean the concept is irrelevant because it is nevertheless absolutely incumbent upon us as believers to ensure that the wicked spirit of selfishness or manipulation or deceit, the wicked spirit uh, of of this this, uh, 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 anger toward a, a brother or a sister in Christ never find its way into the church. Never. But as we would seek to treat all men with love, we would be able to walk into this body and believe and expect absolute spiritual, emotional, and physical love one to another, meeting each other's needs, praying one for another, those things that would be expected in the body of Christ. The absolute height of love and of care and of honor and of respect. No manipulation, no ulterior motives, no deceits, no backstabbing, no gossip. None of those things that we would expect from the world. No Minnesota nice. Right? The real nice. Not the smile on your face and then walk away and frown. The real nice. The genuine. The genuine article. We are to be able to interact with 100% confidence one with another and believe that those who are part of the body of Christ have our best interests in mind as we interact one with another. And even in a historically moral and relatively speaking moral culture, Western culture, this kind of community is somewhat rare. And it's certainly only achievable as we're walking in the light, as he is in the light, as we're abiding in Christ. And once again, that brings us to this idea. This comes as we're walking in the light. If I'm walking in darkness, I will not love my brother as I ought to love my brother. Which means I have to walk in the light. Which is why these things are written, that we sin not. And if any man sin, he have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we are going to sin, but when we sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why is all of that so necessary? Because if you and I are going to do for one another and be, live toward one another the way we're supposed to live toward one another and do as we ought to do one toward another, we have to be right with God. We have to be walking in the light. Okay, pastor, that makes sense. But I'm still confused over one thing. Why use that example of Cain and Abel? I mean, yes, it's perhaps common for the human heart, right? It's common for the human heart to get upset when sin is exposed uh, by another man's righteousness. And this might play out in the world, right? That we go out into the world, and I get that. And then there's the contrast. But, but, but why would John tell believers not to love one another in that way? Is he really saying that, that we might murder a brother well, the answer is as we continue. Verses 14 and 15. John says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. That word death meaning separation, right? It doesn't mean that you have died, that, you're, that your spirit has left your body, but rather that you are living in separation, darkness from the Lord. Verse 15. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him, Do you recall back in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said something similar to this. In Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said, "...Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment." And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus here sets a standard for thinking as it relates to the kingdom of heaven. And within that standard of thinking, though I may not physically kill a man, if I harbor in my heart anger, bitterness toward that man, I am in my heart exercising the same kind of wickedness that resides in the heart of the man who goes on to murder his brother. So Jesus is bypassing the concept of actions here and driving directly down to heart intent, heart motive. That if in my heart I have murder, yes, though I have not actually physically murdered my brother, yet as my heart lives in this place of murder, I am in the same spiritual place that the murderer is. My heart is manifesting the same kind of emotions, manifesting the same darkness. Now, of course, as we think through this idea, society can't operate on such a principle, right? We can't convict people or condemn people for what he thinks or what he feels. Society focuses upon what a man does, and it has to be that way, and it ought to be that way. But in the Christian economy, between me and God, not between you and God and me, uh, between me and God. What is in my heart is just as important as what I do in my body. So that before the eyes of God, the heart of a man who hates his brother has a murderous heart, whether or not he ever acts it out in his own body. Now, in the same way, the heart of a man who lusts after a woman has an adulterous heart. Jesus would go on to say that, that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. Does that mean that he has physically uh, committed the act of adultery? No. Does it mean that society will bear upon him the same kinds of consequences that it would bear upon him if he actually physically committed adultery? No. But what it does mean is that what is happening in his heart as it relates to his interaction between him and God, is not that different if he acts on the impulse or if he just indulges the impulse in his heart. And that's the idea then that we carry back into 1 John. Verse 15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. If among any man... But even so much more as we see the interaction here among the brethren. If among the body of Christ, you are actively failing to love your brother, you are marginalizing your brother, you are disesteeming your brother in your heart, you are abiding in death. And so in the spiritual sense, in that you have margini- marginalized your brother's spiritual worth, in that Galatians 6 tells us that we should do good unto all men as we have opportunity and especially unto those that are of the household of faith as the Word of God tells us that we are to love the brothers and sisters in the Christ, and by, in, in Christ and by this shall all men know that we are his disciples when we love one another. By this standard, if I am not elevating my brethren... I am thus marginalizing their spiritual worth, and by doing so, I have this condition in my heart of this spiritual, as it were, spiritual murder. Now again, let's be clear about this. We are not talking about actually putting your brother to death. That's not the context of this conversation. We're not talking about you all walking in one day and you find Pastor Wickler on the, on the floor with a knife in his back. That's not what we're talking about today. The essence of one man murdering another man in the physical is that one man has so little regard for the natural human dignity of another man, for the image of God that is in another man. He has so little regard for the value of that man that he is willing to put that man's life, to end that man's life for his own reasons, whether that's his anger, whether that's his jealousy, whether that's his covetousness, whether that's his, whatever it might be. He is willing to end another man's life to snuff out the image of God in him for his own reason. That's the essence of physical murder. Now think through this with me. When I treat a brother in Christ with contempt, when I fail to love him as I am commanded to love him, what am I doing but marginalizing his spiritual worth? I am thus hating him. I may not emotionally loathe him. I may actually think he's a pretty nice guy. We may not have any sort of a personality conflict. We get along just fine. But in the sense that I disesteem him, I am placing him lower in value or in favor or in priority. I am stripping from my brother the natural spiritual dignity that is due to him as one who is a child of God. And John likens this, as it were, to murder in that same sense. We also see this same metaphorical sense in James when he's teaching about you have not because you ask not, and he says that you fight in war, you you kill one another. The idea there is not, James is not discussing geopolitics there. He's talking about amongst brethren where we kill one another, we fight in war against one another. It's the same metaphorical principle. We're stripping the man of the natural inherent dignity that is due unto him as one who is a child of God, who is a brother in Christ. And this is something which, this esteem, this honor, is something which believers owe one to another. In the same way that we as humans owe one another the natural human dignity of not killing one another. We as believers owe one another the natural spiritual dignity of honoring and loving one another as those who are transformed by Christ into new creations. But as I say this, I remind you that the obligation here is a two-way street. And the reason why I say that is because when, when we think through this concept, and I want you to really be honest with yourself and search your own heart on this, what we often find is that there's somebody who says, yes, this is exactly what people need to do. They need to start treating me this way. I deserve this. I am entitled to this. This is my spiritual birthright, without any consideration for the fact that they're not doing it to anyone else. Love is a two-way street, Christian. There are people, guard yourself against this, there are people who become spiritual parasites, demanding all of the privileges of the believer as it relates to receiving respect, receiving love, receiving help, receiving whatever it might be, while never assuming any responsibility as a believer to give back. The nature of the Christian life is that as you are loving me unconditionally and I am loving you unconditionally, then we are each seeking each other's best good and things work really well. It gets a lot harder when only one of us is doing that. It's the same with a marriage, right? The essence of the marriage is that I love my wife unconditionally and I am seeking her best good. She is loving me unconditionally and seeking my best good. And as I seek her best good and she seeks my best good, both of our best good gets fulfilled. As we love and serve one another, this is a relationship. That's the body of Christ as well. In a perfect society, anyone who claims Christ, of course, thus, could interact with anyone else who claims Christ. And with the kind of reckless abandon, we could make ourselves vulnerable one to another with a love that we would desire one toward another, and that would be in a perfect world. But we don't live in a perfect world. In the perfect world, we could have full implicit trust one in another that when a person claims Christ and, they, and, and they, they, they claim to be associated with the brethren, we can simply fully invest ourselves in them and love them in that way. But that kind of social fabric is very difficult to build, even in the church. And this is, as a side note, One of the reasons why Legacy Baptist Church, among many uh, other systems and among many other churches, choose a church membership structure. Say, Pastor, why do you have church membership? Church membership isn't necessarily in the Bible. Church membership is not something that you can go to chapter and verse and point to. And it's absolutely right. We can't do that. But what we have done at Legacy Baptist Church prayerfully is that we've sought for a structure whereby we can have that kind of investment one in another where we can know that the people that we are, are, are dealing with are on the same page as us as it relates to the kind of commitment and determination, though we're all frail and though we're all going to sin and we're all going to, to miss the market times, but we have that same determination and consideration that we are going to invest in one another and love one another and we recognize the urgency and the necessity of this command. And the way that Legacy Baptist Church has chosen to add a safety net and a procedure in place to to, uh, guard the vulnerabilities of such an investment is through church membership. So that those who are willing to go through the process of binding themselves to the church in this way will find in the church this determination And among the members, there is a heightened level of freedom to openly and unambiguously invest one in another with the the determined confidence that says, in the same way that marriage has that binding covenantal idea that says, we have bound ourselves together and I can trust you as you can trust me. And of course, it's not a foolproof plan, but that's what we've done. And so if you've ever wondered why, why, why have that when it's not in the Bible, That's why we, as well as many other churches, choose to go in that direction, unto that end that we can feel within the scope of that community free to exercise the kind of brotherly love that God commands us to exercise. Now, as we continue then in 1 John, he gets a little bit more specific. He says in verses 16 and 17, "...hereby perceive we the love of God." Because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? The implicit question is asked. How can I know what kind of love God wants me to show to my brother? Okay, so you're saying love the brethren. That's good. Not as Cain. Okay, I get it. Negative example. Don't kill my brother. That's a good thing. Um, and, and then we, we make that spiritual. We spiritualize that. Don't don't have murder in my heart. Don't disesteem my brother uh, in my heart. Don't place him lower in value and priority and favor. All of those things that we see here, we get that. Love my brother as Christ loves me. Okay, how do I know whether I'm doing that? How do I know whether or not I'm actually loving the brethren? I mean, it... Hopefully, hopefully we don't actually have to physically die for one another. And if we don't actually have to physically die for one another, if I don't have to, you know, push you off of the train tracks or whatever it might be, how can I know that I actually love my brethren this way? How do I perceive this love? And John answers this question in two ways. First, he goes broadly. He says, as it relates to loving your brethren in the same way Christ loves us, first look to the cross. Jesus gave his life. Without earning it, without deserving it, at the utmost expense to himself, Jesus poured himself out even unto death for me. So then the first element of how do I do this, what does this look like, is that you aren't just doing to your brother what he's doing to you first. Well, if my brother wants my love, he better earn it. He better, he better show me. He better prove himself. That's not what Jesus did. And so the first element of this love is love in that manner. Love with that openness. Love with that expectation. Love whether or not they deserve it. Love whether or not they've earned it. Again, if we were to extend that to kind of a marriage analogy type thing, for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness, health, right? And then the correlation. We ought to do the same as Christ did. We ought to be so invested in the well-being of our brethren that even our lives are laid down for them. Again, in most scenarios, we would not expect to have to do this in our country at least and in our uh, context of the world. But there should be no ceiling to our determined investment for one another's good. And then John gives this example. What might that look like practically? Well, he asks a question. He says, if you have plenty and you see your brother have a need and while your brother's in need and you have plenty, you shut up your compassion. You do not give your brother that which he needs when you have plenty and he has a need. How can you possibly say that the love of God for your brother is dwelling in you? Because there is no scenario based upon what Jesus did for us on the cross where Jesus would have done what you just did to your brother. So how can you say that the love of God is there? How can you say that eternal life is abiding in you? And I kind of skipped that in verse 15. Let me go back to that for just a moment. Notice the wording here. We've talked about eternal life. We've talked about what eternal life is. we talked about Jesus' prayer in John 17. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. When we're talking about eternal life, we're not just talking about a home in heaven. We're not just talking about the resurrection. We are talking about the fullness of joy that comes from living a life in abiding. How can I say this is the idea? Not how can you say you're a Christian. That is not what John is asking. John has made it very clear they're Christians. How can you say that you are walking in eternal life? How can you say you are abiding in Christ? How can you say you're walking in the light? How can you say you're walking in the spirit when you hate your brother in this way? That's the context here. Okay, back to what we were saying. Whoso hath this world's good, seeth his brother have a need, shuts up his compassion from him. How can we say then that we love our brother as Christ loved us? And then John's conclusion is found in verse 18. My little children, once again, that expression of affection and of confidence in their faith. Let us not love in word, Neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It is utterly insufficient for us Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God, called to love one another as Christ has loved us, to simply acknowledge these ideas in word. It is utterly insufficient for us to mentally assent to the concept of loving my brother, mentally assent to this kind of relationship in the church, mentally assent to Jesus Christ's sacrifice and my relationship to it as it relates to you. It is utterly insufficient for me simply to to think that in my mind or to say that in my words. They only have any usefulness. They only have any relevance to the extent that these things manifest themselves in what I do. And of course, we can walk through examples of this and we'll get there as we close things out toward the end of 1 John. But the vein of John's own instruction in 1 John 2, which we considered a couple of weeks ago, I believe the Spirit of God being able to be your teacher here, in that... John stated that fact, that the Spirit of God is with us in order that He might teach us all things, guide us into truth, and He is no lie, and that truth abides in us as He abides in us. So I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit at this point in our series in this way. As we have said these things this evening, as we've walked through the practical, even just a little bit here, As the Spirit of God commends these things to your heart, how are you doing this evening, Christian? Are you loving the brethren? Is this the kind of mindset that you operate under as it relates to believers? Do you have a heart of determination unto this end? And as I ask these questions, I'm not asking these questions to make you feel guilty or to bubble up in you shame or any of those things. But if you are feeling conviction, if the Spirit of God places His thumb definitively definitively on something and says, This is something you can work on, don't get angry at me. Don't kill the messenger, right? That's what Cain did. Don't do that. But deal with it, face it, acknowledge it. Not before me. There's one mediator between God and man, and that mediator is not Pastor Wickler. Deal with it with God. Deal with it with your brother. Why? Because he that hates his brother abides in death, because he that hates his brother walks in darkness. Do we have this heart of determination unto this end? Does the manner in which your life is lived reflect consistency with these principles? Or are you a selfish believer? A cynical believer? A defensive believer? A parasitic believer? Are you taking it all in? Are you soaking it up like a sponge but never giving any of it back out? Are you sucking all of the love that the Christian church can give to you dry And then saying, thanks, I'm going to go find someone else to do this to next. Is this a relationship? Are you pouring out as you're bringing in? Is this your mindset? Are you absorbed in the process of following Christ unto a love for the brethren? Are you withholding this kind of love? Disesteeming your brother in Christ? In that spiritual sense, murdering him in your heart. On the authority of God's word, our highest priority, this side of heaven, is the family of Christ. And may it be so with each of us, that as we seek to abide in Christ, as we seek to walk in the light, that we would understand the essential connection to this thing, to this love, and to the believing community unto which we are bound. And as we all seek unto that anointing which is truth and is no lie by which we are taught and through which we abide in Christ, that is, the Spirit of God, let us remember that this love is not a love in word and in tongue. It is a love that is in deed and in truth. That the call is not to be a hearer. It is not a call to be an agreer. It is not a call to walk away saying, you know, Pastor Wickler was was, was right on there. Or, you know, the word of God, that, that, that's, that's true. It's, it's a call to say, I'm going to go do that. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.